Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. In the words of Walt Kelly, we have met the enemy and they are us. After 20 years of reflexively looking at terrorism as a threat arising from faraway lands, the country is confronting a scourge of terrorists in the homeland. Domestic terrorist attacks are at the highest point in decades. The most serious come disproportionately from far-right white supremacists, targeting people of color, Muslims, Jews, immigrants, and members of the LGBTQ community, and of course, government itself. The trauma of January 6th reflected the special and serious threat that domestic terrorists pose. The marauders at the Capitol sought to impose damage not on Americans, but on America itself. And their crimes were so vicious precisely because they aimed to undermine the foundations of democratic rule. And startlingly, the insurrection has served as a strong recruiting tool for the Oath Keepers and other groups who have seen their ranks swell by dozens or hundreds of new members. The presidency of Donald Trump put wind in the sails of domestic terrorists, but even with the former president swept grudgingly off the scene, groups such as the Proud Boys and Three Percenters continue to flourish. How directly is their growth tied to the miserable, bitter politics that are Trump's legacy to the country? Are they fully homegrown or are they partially propped up by foreign adversaries and in particular Russia? How are they able to recruit new members? Has the federal government been caught flat-footed by the paradigm shift? Most importantly, is there any policy prescription for uprooting and crippling them as we have been able to do with at least some international actors? To detail the new profile of threats to the national security in 2021 and the implications of the sharp rise in domestic terrorism, we have three of the nation's leading experts, and they are Julia Jaffe, a founding partner and a Washington correspondent at the new media company Puck, which I think it's like spanking new. Yes, Julia, you, you've just debuted. Yeah, we launched uh, less than a month ago. Exciting. Congrats. Thank you. She's a leading journalist for national security and foreign policy issues with an emphasis on U.S.-Russia relations. And she is the author of the forthcoming Motherland. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. David Chris, one of the nation's foremost experts in intelligence, law enforcement, and security issues. He's the founder of Culper Partners, LLC, which offers strategic business consulting at the intersection of technology and security. He served in several senior positions in the Department of Justice, including Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division, that is the head of the division, and before that was a federal prosecutor for eight years. Hi, David, and welcome to Talking Feds. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
and Senator Bob Carey, the co-chair now for the advisory board for Issue One, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization seeking to reduce the role of money in politics. But of course, he served as United States Senator from Nebraska from 1989 to 2001, during which he was the vice chair of the Intelligence Committee. Previously, he was governor of Nebraska, and before entering politics, Kerry was a Navy SEAL in Vietnam and awarded the Medal of Honor for Heroism in Combat. Thank you for your service, Senator, and honored to welcome you to Talking Feds. Oh, nice to be with you. Let's just start here. So the Biden administration, it seems to be the consensus, has declared that domestic terrorism is the most urgent terrorism threat that the United States faces today. Somewhat startling when you think about the last 20 years. Just on that alone, any dissent? All, all three of you agree with that proposition? I don't agree with it. Let's hear. Domestic disturbances, whether it reaches all the way to terrorism or not, is nowhere near as big a threat as a cyber threat that comes from China, Iran, North Korea, and non-nation state actors. It's not even close. It's disturbing, and it can be destabilizing, especially in the midst of these moments. We forget the idea that was the founding idea of the country to begin with. So it it can seem like it's the biggest threat in the world. I just don't happen to think it is. Well, so, Julia, David, that's cutting against the grain of at least the new conventional wisdom. What do you think? Well, I'll second, and I definitely think you've seen a shift over the last several years from a focus on international terrorism to a focus on domestic terrorism. Right. And the FBI now basically has more DT than IT investigations open. But I also think what Senator Kerry said is exactly right. And if you look at the way the intelligence community is uh, sort of prioritizing, triaging, and framing the threat picture, they use what's commonly referred to as the two plus three model. And that's a big shift from the almost univocal focus on international terrorism beginning after 9-11. And the two plus three model is Russia and China as the two, Iran, North Korea, and then in fifth position, violent extremists of all kinds. Including domestic. Including domestic. And I think it's fair to say domestic vis-a-vis international terrorism has been a big shift But I do think you have the nation state actors and their preferred threat vectors, which include cyber heavily, election interference and the like, that are really getting uh, to the top of the intelligence community's overall list of worldwide threats. This is pretty interesting way to start out because Biden himself, but then many others. So, Julia, three dissents to the emerging conventional wisdom. I'm going to disagree with Senator Kerry and David, <gasps> and I'm going <laughs> to... We love this on Talking Feds, but I'm not a tiebreaker. I'm just a commentator. Well, and I'm going to disagree, Harry, with your characterization of it being surprising. I do think cyber is kind of almost a different bucket. I think after 9-11, we've come to think about terrorism not as maybe like outside the international intelligence community, but I think we've come to think of it not as somebody at a computer hacking something, but as somebody blowing things up, ramming a truck into a crowd. And I do think that the government is always a little bit slow to catch up to things. And what we saw during the last five, six years with the rise of Trump, which culminated, of course, in the attempted coup against the U.S. government, Um, On January 6th, you know, that came not from Russia or China or North Korea. It didn't come from Al Qaeda or ISIS. It came from the U.S. And I think that that is 
a big, big threat, the rise of right-wing extremism in this country, given the extent to which they are armed. You know, a lot of the gun super owners are in this community. And I do think it is a big threat. And I think the message in shifting that message, I think, was an attempt by the Biden administration to recognize that. And as part of its shift away from the Middle East and thinking about Islamist terror versus this more homegrown enemy. And maybe the distinction is a little bit different than it seems. I think your answers all highlight that they are sort of different kinds of threats. So the the threat that January 6th posed went to the heart of the of democratic rule in a way that we don't think of international terrorists actually auguring. Right. But I think the question there is, you know, ag- existential threat. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we got wrong in the interminable war on terror, and I think this shift is highlighting the failure of the war on terror. We always thought of post 9-11 of Islamist terrorism as being an existential threat when it really never was. And I still don't think that Russia taking out uh, a gas pipeline in the in the southeast of the U.S. is an existential threat. It's an inconvenience, and it gets back up online a couple of days, and people wait in wait in gas lines, and it's and it's a pain in the ass. But it's not existential in a way that you have people storming the Capitol, threatening the lives of lawmakers, and then basically getting away scot free. I think that is existential. Which remains to be seen. Or there's all kinds of counterfactuals playing out now. Were we close? How close were we to some kind of coup? Well, look, we have a different system of government. We have an open government, a transparent system of government. And by the way, I think the war on terror was personally, I think, is flawed because terror is just a tactic. It's not an ideology. It's a tactic. Especially suicide bombing is it may have been invented in by the Tamils in Sri Lanka, but it's a very effective tactic and it disorients people. What the terrorists want, they want you to overreact, especially in a democracy. Mm-hmm. So if the incident produces a loss of confidence in self-government, it can be very destabilizing, which is what I think January 6th did. And we still have you know, one of the two major parties in the country, half the people who are re- identified as Republicans still believe the election uh, was stolen. That's not good. I don't disagree that, that it's not good. From my limited understanding of what the North Koreans are doing and the Russians are doing and the Iranians are doing and non-nation state hackers can do. Um, it's, not, it's not just an inconvenience that it makes it difficult for us to be able to get fuel that we need to heat our homes. It can be massively destabilizing. It certainly is going to make it difficult. I think Putin's in a position right now where he can make it extremely difficult for us to make any additional progress on climate. Even if, if you don't believe that's a, a problem, it can make it difficult for us to make other decisions in a democratic environment. I will agree with Julia, certainly that January 6th and what it represents and the trend line that precedes it is very, very, very serious. And it is, I think, at the first level of danger. You have efforts by foreign actors to sow dissension and destabilize and set us against one another through their various efforts. Those efforts have been going on in one form or another for many, many years, You know, going back to the yeah. days of Anatoly Dobrynin trying to bribe presidential candidates in the 1960s and so forth. What's so horrifying in a way is how much traction they've gotten. And that's a problem with us as much as it is a problem of outside influences trying to, you know, prey on us. We're vulnerable 
because of, of who we are. And it's, it's fascinating to me. It'll be interesting to see next year's worldwide threat briefing and whether the hierarchy of threat picture and threat actors gets reordered in the way Julia is suggesting. But if you look at how the FBI is currently talking about this, they've been talking about white supremacist domestic terrorism on the rise, you know, basically since 2016-17 and increasingly raising alarm bells. And what you see in their most recent public statements, congressional testimony and the like, is stuff that the Bureau typically is not comfortable saying, which is things like, We need to improve civic education and faith in government and understanding of how government works in this country because that's the root cause of a lot of the problems we're seeing. The Bureau and the government generally were criticized for not getting at the root causes of international terrorism in the post-9-11 period and instead just sort of trying to kill their way out of it, as it were. But here they are now speaking more and more explicitly about the need to get at some of the root causes on the domestic side. It's an interesting set of developments to watch, and I I will look for next year's worldwide threat briefing to see whether and to what extent they reorder or reorganize their presentation. Let me follow up on this root cause point. Is there any connection between Russia or other malevolent state actors and the rise of domestic terrorism, or do we see those as basically sealed off from one another and independent? Yeah, as we saw during the run-up to the 2016 election and after, you had Russia doing a classic intelligence operation where they weren't really creating the facts on the ground so much as they were exploiting them, you know, not lighting the fire, but fanning the flames. I do think that we're big enough and rich enough and smart enough and staffed enough to deal with all of these things, right? I don't think we have to choose between cyber and domestic terrorism. If you pull back, I think also part of the shift in that messaging of saying that right-wing domestic extremism is more threatening to the U.S. than Islamic extremism abroad. I think it's also part of a domestic messaging, political messaging. Over the last 20 years since 9-11, Muslim American communities have felt justifiably unfairly targeted by counterterrorism efforts. And for a long time, a lot of them were saying, why are you looking at us? Look at Joe down the street, who's in a militia in the forest and has like a gazillion bombs and a doomsday shelter full of water purifier and cases of ammunition. So I think some of it is also about domestic political messaging. Is it also about domestic uh, political and law enforcement resources? So everyone here knows Jed Johnson, and he said the principal terrorist threat to our homeland is now domestic base. And there are not a whole lot of DHS cops running around the interior looking for terrorists. Well, if you listen to Marjorie Taylor Greene and people who aren't quite as extreme as she is, who actually are telling their audiences that what's happening is mandatory vaccines are comparable to what what went on in, in, in the National Socialist Republic in Germany, that these are brown shirts out there, that they're hunting you down. I mean, the whole January 6th investigation. She and, and many other people are saying the investigation is going after genuinely good law-abiding citizens. Basically what Senator Grassley said after, they, after they put, the Judiciary Committee put out their first report. There's no evidence that President Trump did anything wrong. In fact, uh, Senator Grassley said he did something really good because he didn't act on it. My number one concern is a bit connected to what Julie is saying. I, I, I do think the idea of, of America is a very difficult idea, and we can get lost. We have 535 men and women in the Congress that have to decide what to do 
any one day, any one point in time. And they damn near defaulted on our debt. <laughs> they didn't. They just pushed it back into, into December. That is domestic terrorism, but they don't do it. They could bring the economy down. They could cause all kinds of, of, of real serious suffering in the country if they don't. But you don't have to just look currently. I mean, we had racist anti-exclusionary legislation that was going on in the early 20th century that made it exceptionally difficult for President Roosevelt to negotiate any kind of favorable agreement with Japan. And there's a pretty good case that it set up the Second World War. So it's not that we have to go back very far to find examples of where we put the idea of our democracy at risk. The Congress never passed federal anti-lynching legislation. Uh, and I would say that the KKK was at least as big a problem as any right-wing conspiracy group that's roving the country this day. I think because we just had the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and we had the end of the war in Afghanistan or the U.S.'s active participation in it, I think so much of the last few years, but especially the last year, have done is to end, to make us really question the um, idea of American exceptionalism and also the idea that democracy is the natural state of human affairs. We learned that the hard way in both Afghanistan and Iraq, right? That you go in, decapitate these governments, and that people will naturally create a liberal representative democracy. Well, it turns out that it's harder to do it than we thought even here at home. But you've got an election coming up uh, uh, next week in Iraq. And if you listen to uh, news accounts of what's going on, it sounds very much like what happens on the left and right in America. People on the, on the left say, I'm not going to vote because it doesn't matter. People on the right say, I'm not going to vote because it doesn't matter. That's the challenge of democracy, persuading people that even though you don't get everything you want, that it's still important to participate. And the moment we all give up is the moment we're doomed. And there's plenty of, plenty of arguments that we ought to give up. I hear Julia saying that democracy is very hard and not the natural state of government, and I, I'm inclined to agree with it. It's not easy to sustain. There's an ebb and flow historically that Senator Kerry was talking about to whether we're going to really try to be a democracy that functions or whether we're going to just invest in power and the tactics of power. And I've seen the ebb and flow of that even over relatively recent history in the 1990s. I spent a number of yeah. years out in Montana working on a prosecution of a very noxious group of uh, folks called the Montana Freeman. And they were mainly anti-government with white supremacy as a sort of adjunct to their philosophy. I had some successful prosecutions against those folks. And I remember with the sort of arrogance of youth thinking, hey, we put this down. We got, we got to win for Team America here. And of course, it's not like that. It goes down for a while. Other things come into play. You focus on the far enemy as opposed to the near one after 9-11. But what you see now is this resurgence of the patriot movement, things chronicled by historians like Kathleen Ballou, who's written yeah. excellent work on this. It's part of the fabric uh, of our history, and, I, and I'm by no means an historian, but you see it coming and going, and it's not something that's one and done, put in a box and solved. It's an ongoing thing, and you have to be able to adapt to changing circumstances. And what we are seeing over the last several years with President Trump, maybe as both symptom and cause, and with extra help from our good friends, the Russians, and the Russian imperial movement is a white supremacist movement from abroad that's trying to export its ideology. So there's a whole lot of factors, domestic and international, in play that are bringing us to this very difficult point. 
And it's an ongoing thing. We will hopefully push it back, put it down, and then deal with the new challenges that present over time. But I definitely think it's an ongoing thing and and a journey, not a destination. And what David said is really important about the difference between the 90s and today. In the 90s, these really were fringe groups out in the woods who, you know, periodically did some real damage, like in the Oklahoma City bombing. Now they're embraced by one of the two. American political parties. And you can't just relegate them to the fringe. That fringe has now bled toward the center. And my worry is that in going after, you know, domestic extremism and domestic terrorism, you also risk inflaming these ideas of, you know, the government's out to get us. The deep state is against us. They're fighting us. This is a war. Let's pick up our guns. One of the ideas that's recently, you know, making the rounds on the on the right is this idea of national divorce, which is another thing, right, about a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional democracy is that, like Senator Kerry said, not only do you have to make your peace with not getting everything you want, you also have to make your peace with sharing a country with people you don't really like or agree with. And I think this was like a pipe dream on the left during the Trump years. And now during the Biden years, we see it emerging on the right. This idea that we should really carve up the U.S., that red America needs to learn to become self-sufficient and not uh, dependent on these corporate and government institutions that they feel are hostile to their way of life and their culture, et cetera. I think the challenge that we're going to have to grapple with is the the fact that this isn't just some guys in the woods anymore, they're in Congress too. They have powerful positions in the media. They didn't have Fox News. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Breitbart in the 90s. They didn't have Ben Shapiro and all these guys. <laughs> Let me stay with that for a second because I too, like David, cut teeth on when the middle of Pennsylvania was, was a hotbed of domestic um, terrorism. But it did seem unwelcome in any kind of mainstream party or by any politician. And you're right, we we have this very both bizarre but also challenging fact that so much of the Republican Party rank and file believe some of the articles of faith very associated with Trumpism. The data suggests that many, many more incidents, much more deadly incidents come from the right wing. Is that just sort of where we are in the country? And could you imagine it flipped on its head? That's exactly what happened in 1968. You saw some of that in this last summer Yeah, with Black Lives Matter. You had to actually take the position that every single member of the United States police force was, was bad. They were criminal. They were all racist. There was a sort of a cleansing requirement going on. The right wasn't much better. They're saying it's all caused by Antifa. So, yes, there is a danger that the left and the right can both conspire. And the conspiracy begins when they say the simple description that I hear oftentimes from people that I talk to, is that Washington, D.C. is broke. You'll hear that a lot. You can't break Washington, D.C. It's an idea. Julie's talked about American exceptionalism. I'm not sure that we as individuals are exceptional. Oh, speak for yourself, Senator Kerry. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) No, but the idea is exceptional. The idea of organizing a society so the society gets to make their own decisions as opposed to having the church tell us what to do or the government tell us what to do. So that idea is exceptional, but it's also exceptionally difficult to implement because you don't have to look very far to find examples where somebody's behaving in a hypocritical fashion. 
And you can use the evidence of hypocrisy. You can use the compromise that's necessary to make things going to reach the conclusion that it's broken. And if you think it's broken, you stop participating. I'm going to take issue with uh, what Senator Kerry said um, about last summer. You're very contrary today, I think. (laughs) Today? (laughs) I know you're, you're... Damaging my, you know, my, my sense of myself here. I need to shrink. <laughs> I'm all about tearing down American exceptionalism. <laughs> um, I do want to take issue with the both sidesism about last summer, and I understand your experience in the '60s and the, you know, the '70s when there was a radical, violent left. I don't think we really have that today, and it's definitely not anything like we have on the right. Going to protests. And a few people looting stores is not the same thing as storming the Capitol and saying that each individual officer is racist, which is often true. But the fact that the structures are racist, I don't think that should be a very controversial position. The left wing has not done anything in the last decade akin to what the right wing has done. We are in violent agreement on that. I'm not setting up the argument that both sides are equally at fault. I am on the left. And it was exceptionally difficult to survive on the left, given some of the language and the things that were being said last summer. It wasn't that that I just had to condemn police brutality and what happened in Minneapolis and what's happened in many other cities across the country. There was a cleansing requirement. And in Nebraska, the Democratic Party in Nebraska, which now has fewer people than than people that are registered as independents, uh, they actually set up a committee that you had to appear before to prove that you weren't a racist before you could put your name on the ballot as a Democrat. I don't think that there's an equality going on here. I think the right has been far worse than the left. I mean, if you look at the people that I came into the Senate with in 1989, Alan Simpson would lose a primary in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Warren Rudman would lose a primary. Bob Dole would lose a primary. Uh, Mark Hatfield, these were reasonable conservative Republicans, none of which would survive. uh, So I'm not saying that they're equal. I'm trying to make politics on the left work, and that's not easy to do at times. Well, yeah, the fact that you had, you know, John Kasich, running as a moderate centrist Republican after he was, you know, one of Gingrich's <laughs> most sharp-toothed and sharp-elbowed henchmen yeah. was That's very true. telling about how far we've come. Yeah, I do think what Senator Kerry said is right about the 60s. There's a famous case from this, well, famous among the nerdy surveillance set of, from the Supreme Court yeah. in 1972, the Keith case <laughs> that was set the standards for domestic wiretapping, which was at that time a response to domestic terrorism. And there is a footnote, 1,500 bombing incidents in the six months beginning 1971, the first half of 1971. Now, that number is disputed. It was disputed at the time, but it gives you a sense of scale. We've had left-wing violence, if you will, in this country. We've had right-wing violence. Right now, we've definitely got a problem with right-wing domestic white supremacist violence. That's the thing. But historically, we've had that coming and going and, and ebbing and flowing. The flavor of the month or the flavor of the decade can shift. I think, Harry, not just an accident of which form and kinds of pathologies are rising up at the particular moment. It isn't just a coin toss. It's the product of a huge number of interrelated factors, socioeconomic, political, whatever. So it's both the case that we've had different kinds of terrorism and different kinds of extremist behavior with different kinds of agendas and motivated by different things. But it's not the case, in my view, that like it's any kind of random or accidental thing and that yeah. you could easily flip over. We've definitely got a problem right now with white supremacist and anti-government 
violence. We have some domestic terrorism that's of the animal liberation or environmental justice sort, but it is very small in comparison to white supremacist anti-government stuff. And, and you can add to the, the 60s, you can add the World War I period, you can add abolition, et cetera. So fair enough. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unpeel the truth about Pinot Noirs to see where the grapes shine best, Willamette Valley in Oregon or Burgundy, France. Here in the U.S., we classify our New World wines by the grape. Old World wines, like those in Europe, are classified by the region. In France, Burgundy is not only the region where Pinot Noir wines are from, but it's also the Pinot's ancestral home. No pressure, Oregon. To level set, Pinot Noir is a thin-skinned grape, which makes it difficult to grow, especially in warmer climates. Burgundy happens to have a cooler climate with ample cloud cover, making it the perfect home for Pinots. The cooler temperature allows the wines to ripen longer, giving the grapes extra time to develop more complex flavors like strawberry and dark berries to black tea and earthy minerality. Burgundy produces Pinot Noirs that are full of aromas and nuances. You can find this in a bottle of Edouard Delaunay Bourgogne Rouge and Louis Jadot Bourgogne Rouge, which I highly recommend. If we hop across the pond, we have Pinots from Willamette Valley in Oregon with similar cloud cover, climate, and soil composition as Burgundy. Oregon produces smooth and fruity wines that are slightly earthy and most definitely tasty, giving the region of Burgundy a run for its money. Some of my favorites are the Samuel Robert Pinot Noir and Domaine Druhan Pinot Noir. You can find all of these at Total Wine & More, where we have a huge selection of Pinot Noirs from Oregon to Burgundy, plus wines from every region in between. All that's left now is to reach up to our shelves and pluck one out for yourself. Let me take it from the other direction. We do have this problem now. We think, of course, it's really connected with the former president. But it's been striking that, A, he's gone and it remains entrenched. And in some ways, it seems to be even outstripping him. So he has a rally and he says you should have a vaccine and he's roundly booed. And generally, his followers seem to have a lot of wind in their sails. Do you think that, in fact, they're kind of leaving him behind and he's not the necessary component of the movement and we're going to see it even out apart from Trumpism flourish? Look, he's the only American politician right now. If he organizes a rally in any city in America, he gets 25, 30,000 people showing up. I think he, he is a demagogue. All fair, but were he vaporized tomorrow or never existed, do you think the domestic terrorism problem that we're currently experiencing would dry up? Julia, you're shaking your head. Go ahead. No, I don't think it would either. I think at this point, it's become a multi-headed hydra. You also have people in the wings like the Josh Hawley's and the Ted Cruz's and the Marjorie Taylor Greens who are trying to position themselves as little mini Trumps in the sense of, you know, um, rallying this movement. I think they're all trying to either, you know, borrow some of his thunder or become little successors to it. But I think even once Trump is off the scene and 
as much as he's endorsing people in the primaries and as much as he's trying to stay active in Republican politics, he is effectively off the scene. It's just that the movement he's created and the politicians who are trying to head it are going to make sure to at least try to keep it going. So I don't think it's a one-person thing to make the connection to our earlier topic. Decapitating movements doesn't doesn't really work that well. It certainly hasn't in the international game. Yeah, except like the, the day after he announces for president, I do not think Twitter and Facebook can keep him off the air. And he'll have more political followers than anybody by, I would say, a factor of two or three. And he will dominate the political debate because he has combined... The religious conservatives, uh, in some miraculous way, with, with fiscal conservatives. That's pretty foreboding. Do you not see a way out for at least several years of both, not just the terrorism, but but all it sort of brings along as far as vicious partisan politics? Well, it depends on the election. So the way out for me is the House and the Senate say Democratic. That the Democrats somehow figure out how to get infrastructure done, the debt ceiling raised. I passed the voting rights bill that mansion and others to put together and then bust up the cares act started getting things done if we demonstrate that we don't have the and i use we because i'm part of the democratic party yeah we demonstrate the lack of competence particularly after afghanistan's withdrawal i think it could be a very large loss in midterm election and we're not electing alan simpson we're not electing nancy Kasselbaum. we're electing people who genuinely believe or at least they say when they talk to their audience that trump won the election in 2020 do you think that were that to happen, it, would, it might uh, solve a lot of what uh, ails us, but would that, in fact, signal the withering of the domestic terrorism problem we have currently in the country? I do think Trump is both symptom and cause. He is a very talented, yes. I mean, I hate to use the word politician, and he is unique, I think, right now in the Republican Party. But as Julie was saying, there's a number of contenders for the heir apparent status. And we all, I guess, are waiting to see what he's going to do in 2024. I think the problem is that the demographics and the other factors and the political philosophy seem to me to be driving towards towards more and more extremism and extreme statements, you know, ranging from Jewish space lasers on down the line. And that, I think, has a big shift in what the sociologists call the Overton window and what is permitted to be discussed and publicly acknowledged. And as that happens, then it drives people at the fringes towards things like domestic terrorism. And so I think if you if you didn't have Trump, you'd still have a problem because you'd still have some of the underlying factors that drive towards extremism. And that stuff's not going away anytime soon. I think the best you can hope for is that it doesn't work. And as Senator Kerry says, it turns out to be a losing strategy, which causes elites and other influencers to shift direction and say, well, we've been backed into a corner and with a shrinking population, we can't go any more extreme than we have, or at least it's not going to work. So we got to go the other way and tack back towards a more moderate position. Maybe that shrinks the Overton window and folks who would have been emboldened to actually drive a truck bomb into a federal building are instead, I guess the best we can hope for is sitting in front of a television set, muttering to themselves and throwing crumpled up beer cans (laughs) in frustration. I'd much rather have them doing that than actively going out and blowing stuff up. I worry that it's not just that the Democrats can't get stuff done. It's also that Republicans are actively, I mean, the reason that we almost defaulted on our debt is because 
Republicans want to see them fail because for the Republicans in the Senate under Mitch McConnell, it's all about winning and losing. And it's a zero-sum game. And it's about party power rather than the country's well-being. That's why you're having issues around the filibuster. All these things that Senator Kerry mentioned that are great, worthwhile uh, priorities like voting rights, infrastructure, et cetera, there's a reason they're stalled. And in part, it's because the Republican Party wants the Democratic Party to not deliver on the things they promised so that they, they can take power and continue not doing anything other than fanning the flames. I also worry that what we're seeing now is kind of a lull and a pause before things get really messy and angry again. From what I've been seeing, I don't think the right has really calmed down. And I think the the left has kind of calmed down a little bit because they have the House, the Senate, and the White House. And to my point earlier that it has bled from these, you know, militia cabins in the woods of Wyoming or Montana to the halls of Congress, you have the Republican Party losing ground electorally and therefore shifting to less and less democratic means like packing the judiciary, like passing all kinds of laws that interfere with people voting or that allow partisan secretaries of state and individual states to overturn elections. Like if we can't win these elections, then why why have elections? I just worry that the tension is going to continue to build and and that there's more and more people on, on both sides of the spectrum, but especially the right wing of the spectrum that are kind of itching for some kind of conflict that they see as cleansing. When you're in power, oftentimes your greatest enemy is from within, your own your own party. And I'm sure you know uh, people who have said, if we don't get single payer passed, I'm not going to vote again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If we don't get climate change done tomorrow, I'm not going to show up and vote again. And they'll say, I don't care if we lose the majority in the, in the midterm. That doesn't bother me. It, and it genuinely doesn't bother them. And it bothers me. And the only way to avoid that, in my view, is you've got to compromise. You've got to find a smart way to get the voters to trust you. I haven't seen the Democrats yet identify places where the government is doing things wrong. I don't want to be in a position where I have to defend every single thing the federal government does. And I would like to see us actually identify things where the federal government is not doing it and get on the side of voters who experience it every single day. They're not necessarily ideological. They're just paying taxes. They're just getting regulated. They're, just ha- they, they, they're brushing into a government that they don't think is reasonable. I know that sounds like I'm a right winger, but that's what middle class Americans are saying. No, you don't sound like a right winger. I'm just saying is that it's hard to compromise when the other side. Yes, you have these internal left wing progressives or social Democrats who don't want to compromise. But yeah. I think the real challenge is that you have a 50-50 Senate where the other side doesn't want to compromise on anything. They just want to see you fail so that they can take back control. I think that's connected to the point you made about people being enthralled to Trump, because you could imagine a different dynamic where Republicans were trying to be more constructive, but everyone continues to be afraid of him. And that just means they're worried about some kind of primary challenge. If I could make one more brief intervention, does that, I mean, I think like highlighting potential differences between and among us, I'm, I'm, you know, much more of a security guy. I do think some of what you're seeing is politics as usual. Wanting the other party to fail, I think is a pretty common disease in Washington, D.C., but some of it is genuinely new in the way of norm violations. And 
I think, attacks on basic foundations, rule of law foundations for democracy. That feels new and different. The way I look at it is that's what fuels terrorism and is of concern through that lens. And it is remarkable to me to see agencies like the Federal Bureau of Investigation saying things in public and congressional testimony like, we need to make government work. We need to restore faith in government as a way to prevent the rise of dangerous, violent extremism here at home. That, to me, as a guy who looks at it through that lens and follows that line, that's a pretty telling development in what's actually happening here. I think it's remarkable to see the FBI talking in those terms, and I think it tells you something. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which generally explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. But we're going to do something a little different today. Talking Feds has a cousin podcast known as Talking Books, in which we do in-depth interviews with the authors of leading recent books. We did one a few days ago with the great Fiona Hill about her new book, There is Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. And here, in place of our normal sidebar, we wanted to play an excerpt from that interview. I want to turn to the point you've already averted to a couple times, Fiona, which is the nature of these broader problems posed by communities like Bishop Auckland or Flint, Michigan, or even Stalingrad. So in your diagnosis, they're a kind of breeding ground for the sort of populism that spiked under President Trump and continues to dog our politics even after him. Can you explain the kind of analytic link that you draw between them? Well, it's it's basically the same socioeconomic impulses that shape these. And, you know, we tend to think, of course, that, you know, the Soviet Union and then Russia, the United States and the United Kingdom must be completely different societies. But if you look back at the Soviet Union, it was essentially one big, giant, blue-collar, working-class state. The vast majority of people in the Soviet Union and then, you know, post-Soviet Russia worked in big smokestack factories. Exactly the same as in the northeast of England and exactly the same as the Flint, Michigans, the Detroits, you know, you kind of, you name it, the Bethlehem, Pennsylvanias in the United States. And the bottom fell out of those worlds almost at the same sort of time, beginning in the 1980s. That's when the Soviet Union starts to collapse and to come um, apart. And it's out of those sort of socioeconomic grievances that emerge because everyone loses their jobs, they lose their livelihood, they lose their identities. Everyone's sort of looking for someone to come along and fix things. And it takes different forms because, of course, you have, you know, different political cultures, you have uh, different state structures. But the outcome is pretty similar in terms of a strong man or basically a populist ideology or an idea that comes up and says, we're going to fix things. We're going to make this great again in the sense of make it great for you and putting things, you know, back to how they were when you enjoyed a job and a livelihood and some kind of certainty for the future. President Putin, Vladimir Putin, is the first populist leader of the 21st century. He was kind of ahead of his time in many respects because he comes into Russia at the end of the whole decade, first decade after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when everything has fallen apart. Everyone suddenly lost their jobs. There's massive homelessness that hadn't really been before. There's civil war. There's all kinds of things going on. He comes in and says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make Russia great again. 
In the UK and the US, things converge at the same time. There's so much dissatisfaction in the kind of the place that I came from about the state of affairs, nothing really improving for them, that in 2016, people vote for Brexit because they want to take back control because they're being told all the time that Brussels is the problem. They're taking your money, you know, they're sending in immigrants from Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, even Italy and France. They're taking your jobs. You need to bring it back again. 2016, Donald Trump saying the same thing. The parties have let you down. He's not even really a Republican. He's, he's a populist leader who takes control of the Republican Party and says the, the regular party, Republican Party, the Democratic Party, they've let you down. I am your champion. I'm your hope. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make the country great again. In other words, you're going to get all your jobs back in the big manufacturing plants, the steelworks and the coal mines. It's the same promise that's made in all of these three places. You can hear the entire one-on-one with Fiona Hill at patreon.com slash talkingfeds, along with many other interviews on important or interesting current events. Those interviews are typically for subscribers only, so you can see what is on offer and decide if you might like to support Talking Feds. This interview with Fiona Hill, however, and our next couple book interviews are going to be open generally to everybody, same as any normal episode. Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million healthcare supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org. We only have a couple seconds left for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where uh, we serve up a question from a listener, and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. So along the theme of today, question is, do we need a domestic terrorism statute? No. Straight no? Yes, but it's tricky. I haven't seen the evidence for it, for the need. That's more than five, sorry. (laughs) And I'll say yes to prove certain cases. Okay, we are out of time. Thank you very much to David, Julia, and Senator Bob Carey for a terrific discussion. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where you will see full episode transcripts. 
And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters and also open to everyone what we view as really valuable discussions, such as the full interview with Fiona Hill on her new book that we did just a few days ago. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. And also, if you want to hear me respond to any questions, I'm going to be doing a Q&A in about 10 days and you can look on the Talking Feds Twitter feed to send those in. Thanks for tuning in and don't worry, as long as you need answers, The Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Olivia Hendrickson is our associate producer and Matt McArdle, our assistant producer. Editing by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Ray Cohn Gilbert, Helena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Our consulting producers are Andrea Carla Michaels and Dustin Nels. And special thanks this week to Michael Dahlin. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.